Addressing the rapidly growing opioid addiction and overdose crisis requires rapid change to addiction treatment. Vital Spark, a Spark Biomedical production, is a thought-provoking, vital resource for addiction professionals, advocates, and patients who want to stay on top of the next wave of opioid addiction recovery options. The show brings together leading industry experts and advocates to explore addiction treatment, research, and resources delivered in actionable, bite-sized interviews. Hello, folks. You're about to dig into another episode of Vital Spark, though this one is going to be a two-parter. So we hope you enjoyed this important conversation behind the science of our opioid withdrawal treatment solutions. We're going to be chatting with uh, an important doctor who helped us validate this solution and why we see it being so impactful for the industry. Now, let's just jump right in without further ado and make sure you stay tuned for part two. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Vital Spark, a Spark Biomedical podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show as we continue to explore major innovations and new methodologies to opioid withdrawal treatment and addiction treatment at large. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today with a lot of analysis and a lot of research to back up, again, the science behind these innovations to withdrawal treatment. But before we get into the topic, I want to make sure that you're all caught up on previous episodes of the show and that you're tapped into more resources to help you understand the full scope of the science that we're going to be breaking down today. So to do so, make sure that you're heading to our website, sparkbiomedical.com. Again, spark like an electric spark, biomedical.com. There you'll find previous episodes of the show, as well as those resources I was mentioning and other pieces of Spark content, including videos, articles, blogs, and more. You can also subscribe to Spark Biomedical on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, there will be the audio versions there, video versions on our site. We've already done several episodes with uh, some of the co-founders of Spark Biomedical, very insightful and moving conversations there. So make sure you're caught up, hit subscribe, and you'll find that full catalog of episodes plus notifications when we drop new conversations. So today's episode of the show is an important one, like I said, but it's important because it's going to be help, excuse me, it's going to be helping validate why we can say with confidence here at Spark Biomedical that the insights on our show and the core science behind neurostimulation for detoxification treatment are so critical and so useful and why there is so much trust behind this new generation of treatment. So at Spark Biomedical, we pride ourselves in our Sparrow therapy device. For those who are unacquainted, it's a wearable piece of technology for treating opioid withdrawal. It sits right behind the ear. It's drug-free and it's proven to reduce withdrawal symptoms. So today's episode is going to be digging into that clinical trial to let our audience understand what we saw as the metrics for a successful trial, how we set it up to be an authentic and trusted trial, 
and what the results of the study found that have then informed our rollout and has also supported the adoption of this treatment by physicians and patients alike. And today I'm very pleased to welcome the study's principal investigator to help us break down the study. So the uh, study's title again was Sparks Adult Opioid Withdrawal Study, and our guest today, the PI of the study, was Dr. Carlos Tirado. He's chief medical officer and founder of Karma Health, and he ran the prospective RCT double-blind study at a Recovery Unplugged clinical site. Dr. Tirado, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Daniel. Great to be here with you today. Really look forward to talking about the, uh, the, the Sparrow. Absolutely. And I uh, appreciate you taking some time to break this down. Being the, uh, you know, the PI on the study means that you have a complete understanding of the science, the technicalities, and the, uh, you know, the successes, which we'll get into here in a little bit, and the results that shape and mold the future of this treatment. So again, thanks for your time. Let's go ahead and jump in. I want to start by first uh, making sure our audience understands your background and your expertise. So can you give us some of that background on the sorts of studies that you've helped conduct in the past and how that informs your bank of knowledge? Sure. Yeah, I'm an, I'm a, an addiction psychiatrist. So I um, uh, completed training in general psychiatry and then did additional training and fellowship in addiction psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. I spent the uh, really the first part of my career in uh, academic medicine, both at University of Pennsylvania and at uh, UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Um, I often describe myself as a, a recovering academic with a relapsing and remitting research addiction. Um, even after I, uh, I left academia somewhat uh, around 2014, and started a, a, a practice uh, that eventually uh, became Karma Health. Karma is actually with a C. It stands for Collaborative Addiction Recovery Management and Assistance. It was a, a it's a practice that integrates primary care and psychiatry to treat people with substance use disorders. I actually met the the founders of Spark at um, an American Society of Addiction Medicine conference uh, a few years back. And um, just by chance, uh, we struck up a conversation. I, I uh, heard about uh, this exciting technology and um, frankly came at it from a pretty skeptical mindset um, with the exception of electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and to a lesser degree, vagal nerve stimulation. There hadn't been a lot of very successful uh, rigorously proven uh, treatments that involve electrical stimulation and psychiatry. So uh, after some conversations and really understanding the depth of the, uh, of the scientific underpinnings of the uh, transauricular device, and then, you know, the targeted application to opioid withdrawal, which is really my, you know, my bailiwick, um, I, I really uh, decided to take the plunge and collaborate with um, with uh, the founders to uh, design our clinical trial. Now let's get a little bit more background on uh, neurostimulation for uh, withdrawal treatment in the first place. How was this treatment option brought to your attention? And I guess before the study, were you aware that this was 
a pioneering method for withdrawal treatment? Uh, I guess just break down you know, your association with it before the study. Yeah, that's a great question. The application of neurostimulation for the treatment of withdrawal is, it's both old and new and emerging. And, and I say that because there have been a body of, of literature uh, dating quite a while back, up, up from the 40s up to the 80s, uh, on, the, on the utilization of electrical stimulation in different forms for mitigation of opioid withdrawal symptoms. Uh, that went kind of quiet for a while um, until uh, the 2000s, in which you saw the reemergence of, of some interest in, in utilizing neurostimulation for mitigation of opioid withdrawal. I think, you know, sadly, the um, opioid crisis that we've been in now, I don't even know if you call it a crisis because it's been going on for 15 years, um, uh, I think you know, spurred uh, a lot of interest in applying some of these non-invasive uh, electro-stimulation procedures uh, for mitigation of withdrawal symptoms, which is incredibly important clinically if you're trying to treat people with opioid use disorder. So then with this in mind, uh, let's talk about what it takes then to validate this kind of treatment and make it so that it can be you know, mass produced and then pushed out to market uh, as a viable and trusted uh, solution and treatment option. So can you help our listeners understand the rigor that goes into bringing a new or novel treatment option into the opioid addiction space specifically? And what are some of the unique specs that are required to validate something for specifically new addiction treatment? Yeah, well, the gold standard really is FDA uh, authorization or, or, or approval. Um, the, um, the, the rigor that's required to be able to pass muster through an FDA process is really the best you know, indicator that we have of the uh, of safety and effectiveness of uh, really any medical treatment, right? Be they pharmacologic treatments to device uh, therapies. So the, um, the goal really was to design a trial uh, with, with the appropriate randomization and blinding to be able to demonstrate treatment effect, you know, get to our primary endpoint, um, and then, of course, be able to uh, demonstrate, um, you know, safety as well. So, you know, the, that, that FDA, you know, um, uh, level of rigor is really what we all strive for. Does the you know, addiction treatment space have any unique barriers to entry or any added layers that have to be considered beyond just FDA approval? Well, in, in my world, uh, when, you know, I, I've been in, involved in both uh, clinical medication trials, psychotherapy trials, uh, and now device uh, trials for um, uh, various uh, substance use disorders, not just opioid use disorders. And some of the, air, some of the areas that we kind of run up against uh, in terms of um, success of treatment trials really boils down to re recruitment and retention. Um, 
designing studies that are able to recruit a, a, a substantial cohort of individuals with the uh, with with the uh, identified problem like opioid use disorder, and then retaining them in, tre- in 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 the trial is very critical, obviously for data analytics reasons, uh, but also you know just from a clinical standpoint, we want to make sure that we're doing right by you know individuals that. A volunteer for these research trials. Um, one of the things that we incorporated uh, in, in the study, in addition to the randomization of, of, of stimulation conditions and then the blinding of the assessors to that condition, uh, was to you know follow these people out you know after they uh, completed the trial to determine whether or not they were safe and in, 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 in continuing to pursue some form of accepted treatment uh, after their participation in the study. So those are some of the cha- unique challenges, if you will, to doing uh, research with these cohorts. Um, it's not like, say, you know, a diabetes medication trial where you're not, you know, once they finish your study, you're not uh, really worrying so much, right, that they're going to have a a sudden negative medical outcome, right? With a person who's in an opioid withdrawal treatment study, you do have to think about, wow, what's going to happen to this person after they leave? What we know is that, you know, people are at risk for overdoses, right? So being able to ensure that we're managing those people appropriately was critical, and it was something that we went into intentionally in the conduct of the trial. Yeah, and I guess with that length of treatment or that you know um, that timeline of treatment in mind, and the the uh, you know careful approach that has to be taken with treating opioid addiction, can you uh, help walk us through the science of TAN or transcutaneous auricular neurostimulation as a refresher for sure, our audience? Sure. Uh, what are the aspects of this science when translated into specific treatment methods that need to be tested for efficacy in a clinical trial? Yeah, it's a it's a very fascinating uh, science. Actually, the 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 basis behind the uh, the TAN uh, device involves uh, stimulation of some key um, uh, branches of cranial nerves. Uh, our, uh, you know, we have, you know, we have a system of cranial nerves that control various motor functions, but we also know some of these cranial nerves have innervations uh, that control other parts of the brain. So in the case of the sparrow, um, the three regions of stimulation that are occurring um, um, are preferentially stimulating branches of cranial nerves five, uh, seven, nine, and ten. Okay, um, you've got three areas that the electrode is stimulating. One, and I'll try not to point at my ear the whole time. Well, I guess I will point at my ear the whole time. Um, you know, you've got your the simba, which is this little shelf of cartilage right over the entrance to your ear. Uh, then you have the tragus, which is that little flap. Uh, in the front of your ear that you sometimes see people pierce these days. And then you've got the auricle, which is just the back part of your, kind of that hard bony part of your ear. And each part, each, each area uh, has uh, innervations that lead to what we call the nuclei of those four uh, cranial nerves. And then from there, you get a branching to other brain regions 
And that's kind of the business end, if you will, of why we, we believe that that auricular stimulation actually translates to tangible reductions in opioid withdrawal symptoms. What, some of the areas that are critical in, that we know are critical in opioid withdrawal are um, one region called the, loc the locus ceruleus, which just means blue spot. It's one of the areas of the brain that's very highly packed with norepinephrine um, uh, neurons. We know that during withdrawal, uh, there's a lot of upregulation of norepinephrine, predominantly from the locus ceruleus. We know that it drives some of the stimulation that people experience during the opioid withdrawal syndrome. Also, an area called a periaqueductal gray, which uh, modulates pain regulation and pain sensitivity. And then another area called the hypothalamus, which is actually responsible for regulating a lot of body functions one of the most critical is what we call gut motility, okay? So if you think about those areas, they map very neatly to the known opioid withdrawal syndrome, which is characterized by, you know, GI distress, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, pain, so diffuse pain uh, all throughout your body and in your joints, and then a stimulation, right? Anxiety, restlessness, goosebumps, you know, kind of this fight or flight type reaction. So by being able to modulate those areas, in, importantly, by actually upregulating your body's own opioid system, your endogenous um, and, you know, opioids, endorphins, enkephalins, dynorphins, actually can help reduce the amount of activation that's occurring from the withdrawal syndrome and thereby cause these decreases in symptoms. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, this kind of connection between external stimulation to the brain and treating, uh, you know, well, I guess just treating in general, but also more specifically, uh, opioid withdrawals or um, addiction treatment does have a long history, uh, though it was only until more recently that it became focused in on the uh, kind of therapy that we see today. And so what I also want to do, Dr. Torado, is um, lay out some of the previous benchmarks in treatment innovation and other clinical studies that kind of informed Spark and Karma Health's round of research. So I'm wondering if you can't just walk us through some of the most critical ones that set the stage. I know uh, electrosleep devices were first developed in the USSR in like 1947 or so, and then that creates a timeline all the way to a 2020 review article on uh, auricular neural stimulation for opioid detox. So what are some other key benchmarks that at least uh, helped inform your perspective and study? Well, I mean, I think I alluded to earlier, you know, that there are other conditions for which certain types of electrical, electrical stimulation or even magnetic, electromagnetic stimulation have translated to therapeutic benefits. So we know that conditions like depression, obsessive compulsive disorder are, are good examples, are conditions that have actually uh, shown to respond to different types of electrical or electromagnetic stimulation. So the opioid withdrawal syndrome, 
uh, we know just you know from what you cited earlier, you know we have we've had various times in which uh, there have been trials looking at this uh, very issue, all the way up to as you mentioned, uh, twenty twenty. We have a more recent review article kind of recapping a lot of that information. One of the the previous kind of a, a previous device. Um, uh, in, which had data published in 2018 in, involved incorporation of actual um, 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 needle electrodes, kind of almost like an acupuncture type of model uh, that was that also stimulated certain uh, auricular uh, regions. So one of the things that I believe, you know, the Sparrow has done is kind of leapfrogged that invasive uh, um, um, technology uh, to creating a purely wearable and unobtrusive device, something that an individual end user can uh, adjust or apply, right, without having to go to, you know, literally uh, an expert technician to be able to troubleshoot or reinsert uh, electrodes, for example, right? So the the Sparrow technology really uh, allows a, like a pure, individual consumer use type of, uh, of model for mitigation of opioid withdrawal. So, you know, the hope and expectation is that we'll be able to see um, 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 wearable, um, individually adjusted and applied um, uh, device uh, for individuals to use, you know, in the home or in the context of a treatment program. Um, Based on the foundation that we've that we've established, you know, with with its efficacy with our clinical trial, you know, as a clinician, you know, who treats people with opioid uh, use disorder, we have to understand that there are multiple pathways that individuals take in order to get stable or get sober in recovery. Um, all of those, uh, you know, unfortunately, converge on managing withdrawal. Okay, um, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things I often tell re- residents w- when they work with me is, opioid users will avoid withdrawal the way a vampire avoids sunlight. It, it, it's that aversive you know, to, to go through. It's a really terrible experience for people. Some people say it's, you know, the worst flu you've ever had. I've had patients say it's worse than that. I trust, trust me, it's worse than that. So having to, to navigate this very difficult terrain of, of withdrawal is critical. And the device in, in the, in the, in the, in the trial, was able to demonstrate significant meaningful reductions in withdrawal symptoms, both subjective and objective reported symptoms within as little as an hour and 120 minutes of stimulation. So in the hands of a clinician, being able to dramatically reduce subjective suffering and objective signs um, really gets you on the right foot with patients and it allows you to engage them in a meaningful way to you know, have that opportunity, have that time to be able to help the patient make a rational decision about their treatment. 
All right, Dr. Torado, I think it's time to jump into the specifics of the SPARC clinical study to validate uh, you know, this broader uh, style of treatment. And you know, just to connect the dots one more time, the first RCT double-blind study on CET for heroin withdrawals was actually done in France in 1987. So now we're you know coming up on, well, let me do some quick mental math, almost uh, 40 years, right? 35 plus years on that study. And uh, you know, we're starting to see the mass validation of this because of Sparks clinical trial. So let's jump in and get into the nitty-gritty, the fun stuff, right? I want to start with the basics. Can you recap us on when this trial was conducted, for how long, and how many patients had to be sourced for it to be considered a complete and a trusted study? Sure. Well, we started the trial in 2019 and conducted it uh, miraculously through COVID <laughs> and um, were able to um, recruit um, a, little over, a little over 40 uh, patients for the trial. Um, just by um, uh, our, our preliminary analysis of 26 uh, uh, subjects, uh, gave us a very representative sample of uh, opioid users. Um, uh, average age is about 34 years old, primarily male, which is very consistent with, with the, uh, the cohorts that we see uh, self-referring for treatment. Um, a usual use uh, or average, average use was for 12 years. So these are individuals who um, are not newcomers. So these, these are people who had been using opioids for quite some time. So again, pretty representative of what, of what we see. And as you had mentioned, uh, primarily intravenous heroin users. Um, there was a, you know, considerable comorbid depression, about 40% or so had comorbid depression, same thing with anxiety. And um, about 30% or so actually had a, 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 a known diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So we had a, 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 you know, like a naturalistic cohort. We weren't cherry picking patients on any level. This is pretty much all comers uh, for the trial. And I alluded earlier to, you know, our primary endpoint, which was, you know, cl clinically meaningful reduction in symptoms of within the first hour and one and and then and then 120 minutes, um, the way we uh, the way we measured that was by utilizing something called the clinical opioid withdrawal scale or the COW scale. It's a standard uh, metric, uh, clin a clinical assessment uh, metric that's done uh, by a, an individual clinician rater, uh, essentially rating. Uh, 11 core symptoms of and signs and symptoms of withdrawal, anywhere from uh, from pulse to restlessness, anxiety, sweating, GI upset, etc. So the, that cow's measurement is used commonly uh, in the field. Um, if you look at really any uh, major opioid uh, withdrawal to study that's been done in the last probably 10 years they're using you're they're utilizing the cows so <clears throat> that that reduction in cow score uh, was was the primary endpoint for the trial we actually had a pretty robust uh, uh, inclusion uh, inclusion criteria 
people had to have a Cal score of 13 or greater. We had a couple exceptions here and there based on clinical symptomology. But a score of 13 is kind of getting into a moderate level of withdrawal. So that means the patient is significantly just uh, uncomfortable from withdrawal signs and symptoms. And then at that point, the patient is was randomized to either a delayed condition. In other words, the patient without their knowing um, was actually delayed in their first stimulation event or they got immediate immediate live stimulation. And what that blinding did was essentially take out that that placebo effect uh, in terms of our statistical analysis, right? We know that the belief that you're gonna get something, right, uh, be it a medication treatment or a stimulation, can in fact be quite powerful, okay, in terms of providing, you know, symptom relief. So, Creating that delayed condition is what helped us control for placebo response effects. Um, so then Let we me, essentially, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I, I was going to ask real quick, with a cow's score of 13 or greater, were there any struggles in finding patients to participate or were there any other metrics that made it difficult to round out that study? Uh, if you don't mind just adding that context and then uh, and then you can continue with your breakdown. Uh, no, not not really. Uh, the 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 condition under which the patients were um, presenting were was uh, uh, as people seeking treatment for opioid use disorder. So they're checking into uh, a, 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 what we call a detox unit, a, a, a freestanding medically assisted withdrawal treatment unit. Uh, you had mentioned the name of the facility earlier, Recovery Unplugged. So, we we actually we are actually recruiting patients who are presenting for treatment of opioid use disorder, um, who who are having to go through an opioid withdrawal treatment. Um, so, um, once a person uh, starts going into withdrawal, uh, the symptoms start increasing really hour by hour. Um, Depending on what kind of opioid they're using, it can either be a delayed onset or, or, or pretty rapid onset. Since most of these patients were heroin users, uh, they reliably will start going into significant withdrawal within as little as you know eight hours after their last use. So these are individuals who came in uh, with the expectation of receiving opioid withdrawal treatment. The the cow score of thirteen, there, therefore was really set as a benchmark to really be certain that we're measuring real withdrawal, right? Um, if you go too low uh, and you just have an anxious, restless person, you could score a certain score that may or may not be withdrawal. So when you're at 13 or above, you're looking at you know real uh, observable physical signs in addition to self-reported symptoms. Perfect. I appreciate that context. Uh, now to pick you back up where you left off, you were just breaking down uh, the benefits of the double-blind aspect of the study. Uh, feel free to continue. Sure. So the uh, the the control. So we controlled for that initial placebo response uh, effectively with with that design, uh, and then uh, for primary endpoint, we initiated stimulation. The stimulation actually occurs at two frequencies, one low frequency and one high frequency that I don't know if that's been covered in, a, in another podcast, but uh, there's a 
the, the reasoning behind that has to do with really getting maximal uh, uh, effect and maximal uh, re- upregulation of all of the different uh, endogenous opioids. We've got three major classes of them in, in the central nervous system. So having both high and low frequency stimulation is believed to be able to get kind of across the board endogenous opioid stimulation. So once we initiated, initiated stimulation, we uh, conducted cows score measures at you know one hour and then 120 minutes. And those were done by assessors who were blinded to the stimulation condition, right? So these are individuals who don't know if they were delayed uh, TAN versus active TAN. Again, just to create that added measure of, of blinding to prevent any kind of initial measurement bias that you would see at, at 60 and 120 minutes. Well, let's dig into the results then. What were you expecting to see with all of that setup and uh, you know, all of the uh, attempts to really highlight the efficacy of the treatment? And uh, I guess, yeah, again, what results were you expecting based on kind of previous studies as well as your knowledge of TAN and, and the science behind the treatment method? Yeah. Well, you know, based on the, you know, the initial proof of concept that was done um, uh, uh, by the, uh, the, the SPARC team, uh, we were pretty confident that we would see some clinically meaningful reduction in uh, opioid withdrawal symptoms. And sure enough, you know, we got a greater than 50% reduction within the first 120 minutes of stimulation. So that, that was... Um, um, you know, really the key finding of uh, the, the way in which the study was designed. And then subsequent to that, we uh, had um, 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 essentially full access to stimulation uh, for the subjects from, you know, time zero all the way through day five for those that remained uh, in the entire trial. So the thing that we saw, what I think was really helpful uh, and clinically relevant was that we continued to see a, a day-by-day uh, clinically meaningful and statistically significant reduction in cow scores all, all the way through day five, so that by the end of day five, you had an overall 75% reduction in opioid withdrawal scores. It's important to note, these are individuals who were not receiving um, any what we call opioid substitution treatment during that time. One of the uh, more uh, conventional approaches to treating withdrawal is to do what's called a, a buprenorphine or some or the common the common name is suboxone taper for patients, which is basically an opioid substitution uh, uh, protocol that gradually reduces their dose of opioid while they're going through the withdrawal state. There are pluses and minuses to that approach, um, but what we were able to show was that without opioid substitution, with just additional medication support, say for GI upset or for uh, tremor or nausea um, or restlessness or insomnia, for example, we were able in the stimulation conditions to show a, a, a steady downward reduction in, um, in symptoms. The reason why I highlight that is because if you look at the curve of what we call, you know, natural withdrawal, so kind of untreated withdrawal, 
or even withdrawal that's being treated with non-opioid medications. So there's a medication out there called clonidine. There's another one called lofexidine out there. What you will see is actually a, a pretty significant increase in withdrawal symptoms going from day one into day two and three, and then a reduction in symptoms trailing off into day four through seven, okay? What we showed is that we had a steady decrease all the way through days one through three. That's important because in that day one through three timeframe, when patients are experiencing increases in their withdrawal symptoms, that is a time when patients will leave treatment. They'll, they'll do what they can to go and continue to use so that they don't have to endure the withdrawal. I talked about vampire avoiding sunlight, right? So being able to have that progressive reduction is very clinically relevant to what we're trying to do. And, incorpor and, and frankly, there's, there's really nothing else that was happening to those patients other than the stimulation, right? in coordination with what we call opioid comfort medications, which is kind of a standard protocol. So um, that, that to me, you know, as, as a clinician and a researcher, uh, really, um, 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 really demonstrates, you know, that we have a, a live effect going on with the stimulation. As you were reviewing those results, were there any surprises that stood out to you? Anything that you know, you were expecting maybe something positive, but it was extremely positive or something you were a little doubtful about that actually did turn out to, uh, you know, to prove itself through yeah, the clinical yeah. study? And if so, how did that kind of change your perspective on the efficacy of TAN for opioid withdrawal treatment? Yeah, you know, a few things. As I had mentioned earlier, I kind of came into this a little bit on the, you know, kind of skeptic side, um, just because of, you know, what I had seen over the years in terms of the utility of, um, of electrical stimulation approaches to uh, treating uh, substance use disorders. Um, so the the thing that was initially quite um, impressive and convincing uh, was the fact that um, clinicians who were not um, part of the study, you know, who were who were just um, observing um, the effects of the um, of the uh, device were reporting back, um, 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 they were, they were, they were sending back positive reports that the, you know, the patients who are getting, who are getting the stimulation, the patients who are wearing the device, uh, are reporting that they're feeling better, um, that they're not as in as much agony. Uh, some of them are reporting that, it, you know, it, it's even surprised them, you know, that they're, they're actually responding, you know, to the device. So that was actually pretty surprising and encouraging. The other thing that I found um, uh, encouraging uh, was that for those individuals who were able to get beyond day three, um, especially those who got to day five, um, they were able to tolerate uh, what we call a naloxone challenge. So when you um, are trying to withdraw someone from opioids 
and start them on a an FDA-approved treatment, which is an injectable form of naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker. Um, you, you typically have to wait seven to 10 days before you can start that treatment because you have to worry about what we call precipitated withdrawal. We were able by day five when we, when we gave that naloxone challenge to demonstrate that patients did not go into precipitated withdrawal and we were able to get them started on the injectable naltrexone, the blocker, you know, two to five days, you know, before they might otherwise be able to get started with it. So that was also pretty cool as well. Um, we, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there are different pathways that people take to being able to, to treating their opioid use disorder with medications. The two principal medication routes involve what I alluded to earlier, opioid substitution treatment, right? That's uh, Suboxone, the, the actual chemical name for that is buprenorphine, or methadone, which is another opioid substitution approach that you have to get out of a, cl a special clinic. And then the other path is opioid blockade, right? So you can take an opioid blocker medication, naltrexone, and that can actually stay in your system and stay on the receptor and block the effect of an opioid if, if it's administered, right? So, and, and, and it's great that we have these tools, you know, we have now an array of three really good treatments, you know, medication treatments for the disorder. And for those who want to avail themselves of that opioid blockade pathway, um, have to go through that withdrawal and being able to shorten the time that they have to be in withdrawal makes a huge difference for their ability to actually start the medication. So just think the difference between, you know, five days for seven to 10 days, you know, to be able to start this treatment can make a, a really big difference for people. Unfortunately, like I said, we're going to have to take a pause here. The episode just had so much detail and important context to dig into that we wanted to let all of these insights simmer and then jump in fresh for a second episode. So while you wait, make sure you're heading to our website, sparkbiomedical.com. Again, that's sparkbiomedical.com. There we'll drop around two of our conversation with Dr. Torado, where we'll actually get to hear from a specific clinical trial participant. And in her own words, she'll describe how tan therapy impacted her journey to recovery. So it's going to be some very uh, heartwarming and emotional and grounded stuff. And it's really going to help connect the dots between the human impact and the science behind our treatment method. So stay tuned for that episode. Till then, I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Vital Spark.